Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dream. Today for Spirit in Action, we have the privilege of welcoming singer, songwriter, and storyteller David Massengill. David paints a gripping and moving picture of the USA through his music, of race and racism, of immigrants, adoption, and much more. Instead of speechifying about politics, David brings change by involving his listeners in real stories that move our hearts, all the more powerful because of his Tennessee vernacular and accent. David Massengill joins us today by phone from his home in New York City. David, it's great to have you here today for Spirit in Action. It's good to be back. I, of course, know you as a musician. I know you as a person who's passionate about music. And you write all kinds of songs. I'm quite impressed by the variety of songs that you write. But the reason I focused on you for Spirit in Action was because of your song, Number One in America. I featured it before on my programs. It's so thematic and so applicable, just the way that real life works, that I knew I had to have you on for my Spirit in Action program. Tell me about that song. Well, I have to give a nod to Woody Guthrie and Bob Dylan and others who wrote in a, if not message songs, uh, sort of story songs that included certain messages. And I was very attracted to that when I was a kid and uh, later on. I love mountain music, ballads. And so I guess I wrote that about 1985 or 86. I had seen in a newspaper in New York City that the, they mentioned my hometown, that the Klan was going to march there. And it shook me up because I didn't remember people using even racial slurs when I was a kid. And either my parents or my, their friends or my friends used racial slurs, but, but I'm sure they're out there. And, but, and yet Bristol, like a lot of southern towns, they were late to integrate. And so I guess it was 65 or so, 66 uh, when they integrated fully uh, the Bristol schools. And it was Bristol, Tennessee, and Bristol, Virginia. And so Virginia integrated one year earlier than us. So I grew up with separate black and white schools, and then all of a sudden we were going to do it gradually. All of a sudden they decided we better do it all at once. And now there's positive and there's negative. When I remember everybody was talking about how difficult it was going to be and what's going to happen if, at a dance and what's going to happen this and that. But also, the, I remember the football coach, I had just gone out for football, and Coach Keller had gone to the Rotary Club, and I asked him what they asked the football coach. And he said, well, we, mostly we wanted to know if the black players were going to help us beat Kingsport this year. And I kind of laughed, and I thought to myself, uh, I guess it's not going to be as hard to integrate as they say it is. <laughs> 
And as a kid, I always wondered why it took so long. It's odd what will the sort of the evolution of your thinking about that sort of thing. And in my lifetime, I'm shocked that we have come so far in accepting certain things. Interracial marriage and now gay and lesbian married, it's like in my lifetime, I'd have thought that the majority opinion would take longer since it was such a hard slug toward this. So when I heard the Klan was going to march, I went back to all these memories of when we had separate schools and how it was going to happen. And everybody was worried when the Freedom Riders were going to come through and what's going to happen then. And the mayor calling up my dad. And, and I remember going to a little store later on, much later. My sister was coming in for Christmas, and I remember watching a white family, poor white family, picking out a toy for Christmas. And I remember the father and mother going, just one toy. Well, just one, I felt so sorry for him. I thought, gosh, the kids are just going to get one toy. And the little girl, a little white girl, picked out a doll and happened to be a black doll. Now, when I was a kid, we didn't have black dolls in the stores, but they do now. And this little white girl, like three or four years old, just picked out a doll and happened to be black. And I followed them along. I wondered if the mother and father were going to let her keep it. I just had to see. And when they noticed that she had a black doll, all the mother did was go, she noticed it, and so she goes, are you sure you want that doll? And the little girl just said, yes. And mother said, all right then. And it made me feel like, gosh, we've come a long way. So I had a lot, of, lot to work with, a lot of memories, and I wanted to show some of the positive and some of the negative and be as honest as I could. And so it took me about a year to get it right. But probably the thing that made me, compelled me to finish it, Frankie Richmond, who was our maid, and it was black, and I was driving her home. And right down the State Street, which was the line of Bristol and Virginia, Bristol, Tennessee, Virginia, and I asked her about the Klan march. And I was thinking, maybe I won't finish that song. It's too hard. And I asked her uh, what happened. And she said, well, the Tennessee side wouldn't give them a marching permit. The Virginia side did. So they had to march on the one side of the street. And she said, now I'm not sure this happened this way, but she said the Tennessee sheriff was standing right at the line and saying, you ain't coming over here. You ain't coming over here. <laughs> And, and I thought to myself, I am going to finish that song for Frankie Richmond. So I ended up persevering. The first place I played it was the Kennedy Center, and a lot of Bristol people came up. I'm not sure they were happy to hear that song. Some of them probably thought that I was putting down Bristol, but I wasn't. I was just showing the way you kind of ease into change in, in a big way, in a small way. In 1963, my hometown, Bristol, Tennessee Sitting on my mother's knee Watching Amos and Andy on TV Amos was Santa Claus on Christmas Eve Little girl was tugging at his sleeve Singing, I have a doll my own color, please He said, honey, you can make believe Just then came a call on the telephone it was the mayor asked if my daddy was home This was for his ears alone Mom and me listened on the second phone The mayor said The freedom riders are on their way They'll be here by Christmas Day Our laws they vow to disobey Cause our school's as wide as the Milky Way well, now we're really in a fix Can't let them show us up like country hicks But once we let the races mix It's goodbye Jim Crow politics First it's 40 acres and a mule 
Then they want to swim in our swimming pool Pretty soon they'll be wanting to go to school Where we were taught the golden rule Imagine them telling us how to live Imagine them telling us how to live We're number one in America Number one in America Beat the drum for us and overcome in Birmingham Oh, to be number one in America Axe handles versus the right to vote Oh, why Jerry has all she wrote Back of the bus, don't rock the boat Separate but equal by the throat That was twenty odd years ago Where's the change in the status quo The freedom land is lying low It's shackled down on a rotten road And a black-skinned man still gets the snub He applies to the country club But he still gets hired to trim the shrubs Get down on the floor and scrub And there's a businessman out on his yacht He's a rain of sunshine patriot And all this talk about boycotts He says it's all a common plot To be number one in America Number one in America Beat the drum, the rumps and overcome in Birmingham Dynamite in a Baptist church Four teenage girls lost in the lurch Fire hoses and the billy clubs Police dogs and the racist thugs The night riders and the lynching mob Lawmen say they're only doing their job To stay number one in America Clubs clan is still around with the permit to march in my hometown. But only on Virginia's ground, the Tennessee side turned them down. The sheriff stood there with his deputies, ostensibly to keep the peace. But he made us this guarantee. By God, they'll not march into Tennessee. Network cameras were triple tier. We laughed and cried and hooted and jeered. But mostly we stood there hood fear till the Ku Klux Klan disappeared. In some far off distant dawn, when the black is president and not a pawn, will they burn crosses on the White House lawn? And talk of all those days by Imagine them telling us how to live Imagine them telling us how to live We're number one in America Number one in America Beat the drum for up the same 
welcome in Birmingham Oh, to be number one in America Last Christmas Eve at the Kmart store A white family there, they was dirt poor Father said, kids, pick one toy, no more Even though we can ill afford I watched his son choose a basketball The oldest girl, the creosote show The littlest girl chose a black skin doll And she held it to her chest in awe I watched to see how they'd react Since they were white and the doll was black But the mom and dad were mad for a fact They just checked to see if the doll was correct So may you make a rebel stand Where black and white go hand in hand Till they reach the freedom land Where the lion lies down near the land Oh, number one in America Number one in America Beat the drum for Uncle Sam Overcome in Birmingham Dynamite in a Baptist church Four teenage girls lost in the lurch Fire hoses and the billy clubs Police dogs and the racist thugs Tobacco clock, Little Rock Bolt and sold on the auction block Night riders in the lynching mob Lawmen say they're only doing their Number one in America An incredible song by David Massengill from his album Coming Up for Air. It's number one in America. There's so much about that song that I love. I feel like I go through waves of experience when I sit with that. And you've explained some of the background to it. You mentioned that your dad got a call from the mayor. What was that call about? It was about the Freedom Riders coming through. And what was happening, they didn't want to be shown up. So they said, well, they, you know, they, they talked about the integration. They were going to do it the next year. And so in order not to be shown up, the mayor said, we're just going to do it now, so, they, so maybe they won't come if we already do it. <laughs> and did they come? They, they didn't come, and so it worked. <laughs> You're too good for them, I guess. <laughs> well, they didn't want to be shown up. You know, a lot of times people know they're wrong, and they'll do the right thing eventually, but it takes way, way longer than it should. Sometimes, you know, a prompt, a faint here, a faint there can do the trick as much as a big forceful thing. But people knew they were wrong. People knew they were wrong. It's just that their pride hurts. A lot of times people don't want to be proved wrong. They don't want to say they're wrong. So that's been a big thing. All my life I've wondered why it takes so long for people to know they're doing wrong. And why does it take so long for them to just come around and say, I'm wrong. Let's make this right. But yet that is all around the world I see this. In that particular instance, I saw it working. And in this way, they salvaged their pride. They're not going to show us up, they said. We're going to do it before they get here. <laughs> it still makes me chuckle. When you mention about people's pride and how they get stuck in a position, I've seen that so repeatedly. 
There's a technique that we use as Quakers. I happen to be Quaker. It's called queries. Instead of saying, here's what you should do, here's what you should believe, queries are questions that we sit with. And so questions about something. So instead of having someone coming up to you say, you shouldn't be bad, sinful in this direction, just ask you how you do stuff. And it produces a whole different willingness to look at things. It's like you said, the mayor, it's like, not going to show me up. I'm going to step forward. I'm going to own what's mine. I'm going to look at it clearly. I, I think it does work that way. You said that the folks from Bristol, some of them, you weren't so sure that they were real happy about this. As I see it, this is a ringing endorsement of Bristol. You know, I mean, with the march and all that, the Ku Klux Klan is not going to march on your side. Do you feel like you were raised with racist attitudes? I mean, you evidently had an African-American maid. Well, that's a very interesting thing. Like I said, my mother and father did not use racial slurs, and neither did their friends or my friends. But the black population was maybe 5 to 7%. It wasn't a big percent. And yet they had, you know, Slater uh, was the Tennessee side, and Douglas was the Virginia side. And I remember some of my friends and I went, the last Slater Douglas football game we went to. We were the only white kids in the whole stadium watching this game, but we thought it was history. We were curious. We wanted to see it. And I remember they had a reunion a few years back, and I happened to be in town giving a show, and I was in the elevator with a bunch of these people, and I couldn't help, but there was a silence in the elevator. I said, you know, a couple of my friends and I were at that last Slater-Douglas game. We went because we thought it was history, and they all kind of nodded at me. I said, do you remember that long 70-yard run? And everybody just, like, smiled and said, oh, yeah, that was old Joe Hendricks. And so, <laughs> and so we had this real kind of connection for about, you know, 30 seconds in an elevator. But I just appreciated, we were in the middle of history. I don't know why it took, as a kid, I couldn't understand why it took so long after the Civil War to come around to do the right thing, but it did. So when we look around the world, why don't they do this and like we did? And yet, when we look at our slow evolution, right now things are happening in a way that I didn't think possible in my lifetime. And like my dad, when my dad knew that I was considering interracial dating and that sort of thing in college, he warned me against it, but he said it wasn't wrong, you know. He said it's just that if you do that and you marry, you're going to have a hard life. Now, I appreciated his honesty in that. Uh, And also, I remember there was a fellow that moved to Bristol that told racial jokes and used racial language and racy jokes, too. And my brother and I were a little bit bothered by that, and we went to my dad and asked him about it. And my dad said, a gentleman doesn't use that word. My dad was what they call a good Republican. He wasn't a racist. He was a fair man, and I sure do appreciate that. Well, historically, there's a whole stretch of decades the Democratic Party supported the racial oppression. Absolutely. And the Republicans were on the other side. They were pulling for it. In the the 1950s, uh, the Republican Party was trying to get racial reform going on a national level as well as local. Famous Jackie Robinson was a a Republican, and uh, my dad used to comment about that all the time. I remember when I went to summer camp, a a whole generation of black kids had to be like the first kid. There were a lot of Jackie Robinson type. I was in Camp Sequoia down in North Carolina. The first year they had a black kid, there was one black kid. 
And everybody was fine with it except for like a couple of guys. I think they were from South Carolina. No onus to South Carolina. just happened to be these guys were like racist. They were my age except they were bigger and they were bullies. And they would like talk about this guy and they would use racial slurs. And none of the counselors would stand up to him and, and I didn't stand to him. I was always been ashamed that I didn't turn to them and say to them like my dad had said, a gentleman doesn't use that word. Now, <laughs> if I'd done that, they probably would have slapped me around. And to this day, I feel that I did not do what I should have done. Years later, I was a big admirer of Muhammad Ali, and when he was in that fight with Foreman, I was uh, at a bar, at a, a biker's bar, and I was all excited about him. And I was going, when he won, nobody expected it. And, and I was going, Muhammad Ali, Muhammad Ali, greatest man of the century. There was a guy at the bar, he was a biker, he was white. He looked at me and he said, I'm going to throw you out that window. I, I said, oh, please don't do that. And he, got, he starts approaching me and I'm going, oh, my gosh. And I kind of grab his arm so he can't throw me out. And he was kind of like trying to throw me out, but he wasn't doing it. And all of a sudden, I was holding on to his arms. All of a sudden, this big clunk goes on top of my head. And I'm thinking, what's that? And uh, I'm holding his arms. What's he hitting me with? And then another clunk. And I, it, then it took me down a little bit. I, my knees buckled. And then a third clunk, and I was about to pass out. And I said, I'm just going to see what he's hitting me with. And I turned away, and there was his buddy standing there with a blackjack in his hand. I went, oh, my gosh. And the guy got all mad and told me to get out of the bar. And for some reason, I just wouldn't get out of the bar. I said, no, you you hitting me for it. And the guy got all frustrated that wanted to throw me through the window and uh, rushed out of the bar because I guess he thought the police were going to come. And the fellow that had hit me with the blackjack sort of put it back in his pocket, and he genially said, uh, you know, my buddy lost $100 on that fight. And I saw he was, he was my buddy, so I thought I'd help him out a little bit. And then he bought me a drink. <laughs> <laughs> it is amazing. Somebody told me, you know, when I told him that story and I told him the thing about camp, and he said, that was you, that was you trying to make up for what you didn't do at summer camp when you didn't say my dad uh, said a gentleman doesn't use that word. It's funny. I mean, as a kid, I remember I was probably politically conservative, but I remember when Martin Luther King said that my kids don't get to go to the amusement parks in Atlanta. And I remember thinking, gosh, that's not fair. Because you know, as a kid, I related to that. And seeing the movie Spartacus was a big thing. You know, when I saw that, I thought, oh, there were white slaves too. And for the first time, I went, gosh, you know, slavery is worse than I thought it was. Because <laughs> as a southern boy, you know, you get told, like they just said at the, at the IPAC thing, somebody was talking that, gosh, they got three square meals a day. It wasn't so bad. Most, you know, slave owners were kind to their slaves. You know, you hear that growing up. You hear that sort of thing. So when I saw that movie, I was very moved, especially when Kurt Douglas's Spartacus was beaten in, in a gladiatorial thing by Woody Strode, I believe the actor's name was. But he was beaten and was about to be killed when the black gladiator, instead of like killing him, tries to attack the uh, Roman emperor who had just done a thumbs down. I was really taken with that moment, and that moment probably changed my life in a way. Also at the end, when everybody stands up and says they're Spartacus, that changed my life in a way. It changed my life politically in the way I thought about what you should do with My Name Joe. It was standing up for your friends. That same thing. That's, seeing that in Spartacus probably prompted that line, My Name Joe. Well, tell folks what My Name Joe is about, because, again, this is a song I learned from Charlie King. By the way, I, I did a Charlie King song about that Dylan thing. Uh, I did that at a Dylan contest, and I got second prize. 
<laughs> so I so I worked at a restaurant for nine and a half years, and all the cooks were from Thailand, and the people were from different places, the islands, and from Mexico, and so forth. And I just sort of I liked being in the kitchen, so I was a dishwasher. And so one day somebody got angry with Joe, the main cook from Thailand, who didn't have a, a full grasp of English, and they had trouble communicating. And there was a picture of Joe on the uh, next to the time clock, and they put an X across his face. One of the waiters got mad at him. And according to the Thai Buddhist tradition, that's a very bad karma, very bad. So Joe just exploded and uh, took his hatchet and you know, basically, you know, the time clock got shot, killed, and uh, his picture, the whole bulletin board and everything, and yeah, glasses got broken. It was quite, quite a scene. Just sort of took that story and made a, so the kitchen crew was coming to his aid, and so they hustle him away and protect him. So my main, if, if I have one theme or one message, it's stand up for your friends. And so that's my name, Joe, stand up for your friends. And my friend Dave Van Rock recorded it. I think nine, nine people or so have recorded it. Joe through another tantrum He could not be understood He cries like baby Samson His English is not good Oh, his English is not good Joe's boss of the kitchen But on the outside he knows The low man on the totem Is wearing giveaway clothes Wearing giveaway clothes Joe, he fights the good fight He wears a white uniform The waiters are all artists Out chasing unicorns Oh, chasing unicorns Joe works 14 hours After 10 he starts to booze He gets very sentimental He sings the Buddha blues Oh, he sings the blues Tenderized the wall When he got through with it Time clock wasn't punching anymore Time clock wasn't punching anymore The waiters ran for cover Maitre D began to lisp The drunkard in the corner Said his lettuce was not crisp Oh, his lettuce was not crisp Then the owner called immigration He said, here's someone you should know He's an illegal alien And I think his name is Joe 
Said I got a job to do. Easy questions, easy answers. Just point me to the kitchen crew. Point me to the kitchen crew. He asked Leroy from Harlem. He asked Cisco from Mexico. He asked the white trash from Tennessee. They all said, My name Joe. My name Joe. My name Joe. My name Joe. The immigration man he sputtered, the kitchen crew they roared, and while they would argue, and Joe slipped out the back door, Joe slipped out the back door, slipped out the back door. His own heartbeat and the distance he has sailed. Oh, the distance he has sailed. My angel, my angel. There is a king in Thailand, and he plays the jazz drums. He has a fine and healthy song. Oh no, I'm not the one. My name's Joe. My name's Joe. My Joe. We're fortunate today to have with us David Massengill. His website is davidmassengill.com. He's my spirit in action guest for the ways that he has of telling stories that lead us to treat each other better, to make this a better world. That song was My Name Joe. It's a touching story, so what I get of it is half of it's true and half of it's imagined. That's right. And the thing was that My Name Joe, when, when this happened and Joe got upset, he kept saying, my name Joe, as though that was the one thing he could communicate to people that would bring his honor back in a way. My name Joe. You don't, like, you don't mess me over. My name Joe. Well, honor, being a gentleman, these are things that you grew up with and that are, are important to you. I think you described yourself as a conservative early on. If you're on the folk music circuit, it's kind of hard to be a conservative, isn't it? Do you know any really conservative folk musicians? A few, a few. But most of them on social issues aren't conservative. But I made the turn. I became a governing Democrat. I went from, in junior high school, I did a Goldwater speech. 
and I won a debate, actually. So I went from there, you know, and then I just started to make the turn. And Vietnam was the thing that turned me, probably, but race too. Uh, I just saw, saw how unfair, and I started to see that a lot of things were dishonorable that our country had done around the world, and uh, also our evolution as a nation was not the Walt Disney-style presentation that I had been toward, and, but Vietnam especially. And I saw George McGovern had, was in the same service as my dad, 1972, I was reading Hunter Thompson, Rolling Stone, and he was talking about George McGovern as a candidate and how good he was. And I decided that I would take a year off school and go work for him. And that's what I did. And I got to stay in contact with him a lot over the years. He just passed away this past year. And I dedicated We Will Be Together, my latest album of sing- songs, dedicated it to him and told the story of a letter I wrote. And he wrote me back. And and then he took a picture with me. He would do these book tours. But he was in the same service as my dad. He was a, he was a pilot, a bomber pilot in World War II. And so he did like 37 missions. I think they stopped after 36 or 37 missions, and they called themselves officially lucky bastards. My dad was also in the Army Air Corps. They didn't have an Air Force at the time. They called it the Army Air Corps. My dad was a navigator, so my dad is a Republican. I remember telling him I wasn't wanted to take a year off school, and I wanted to work for George McGovern. My dad wasn't crazy about that, and I told my dad that they were in the same service together. And my dad said, well, okay. <laughs> so again, uh, your pride, your honor is once you touch on that, once you let people find a common thing, they come around. Sometimes it's a very small thing that will bring people around sometimes. And that did with my dad. As a matter of fact, I ran the McGovern campaign in Sandusky, Ohio. I did a concert to raise money. We'd had the rock thing because they were doing that with Peter, Paul, and Mary, and Simon and Garfunkel. And I thought, I'll do the same thing on a local level. So I did all these things and canvas, went out to California. And I was like the lone white guy in black neighborhoods canvassing for George McGovern. I was a little apprehensive, but as soon as they found out I was doing it for George McGovern, everybody was going cool. We're cool with that. Go on, you know. But I was big on, you know, I wanted to end the war, and I thought that was the honorable thing to do, and George McGovern was the very best candidate we've ever had, as far as I'm concerned. I still have my McGovern buttons. The one with the peace sign is my uh, peace de resistance, and I wear that every once in a while. He's the most decent candidate they've ever had for president, and I'm really proud that I participated. And it brought me around to a way of thinking, you know, thinking that we're in this together and it's not an evolutionary chopping block. We can be like the Indian tribes. We can help everybody. I want to remind our listeners that you're tuned in to Spirit in Action. This is Northern Spirit Radio production on the web at northernspiritradio.org. And on that site, you can find coming up on eight years of programs we've been doing, Spirit in Action, Song of the Soul. You can find links to our guests like to David Massengill, and his website is davidmassengill.com. You can just follow the link from northernspiritradio.org. You also find a place to leave donations. They're very much appreciated in helping us get these programs out. We also encourage you to make donations to your community radio station. They're doing a valuable service, a great alternative to the mainstream media. So do make a donation and help support your local community radio station. Again, we're visiting with David Massengill because he's got music that helps transform us. And we were talking earlier, David, about how... If you confront people with something, you don't necessarily get much change. You get resistance. Yeah. 
I suspect that your technique is to tell them a story. And, you know, when they sit in that seat through the story, changes can come. Yeah. You know, I think the best illustration of that very thing is the uh, novel by Mark Twain, The Ventures of Huckleberry Finn. That novel probably pulled more people toward racial justice than many others that were more forceful. My dad had never read that. I was reading him Matt Hintoff's essay on how people on the left and people on the right did not like that book for various reasons. He was explaining why he thought it was a great book. I was reading that essay to my dad when I was helping him in his last year. And about halfway through the essay, Dad said, well, let's just read the book. <laughs> so I stopped reading the essay, and I decided to read him, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And, of course, it has the racial slurs there, but you cannot read that book without keeping those slurs just to understand and to get, the, get it. So I read it to him, and every day at lunch, you know, I would read him for an hour, and we'd read that, and Dad would say to me, what's old Jim up to today? In rereading it, I read it in, in school twice, and once in college and once in high school. And I don't think and a lot of curriculums are afraid to use it today. But for me, it shows people as human beings. Huck saying he knew it was wrong, but he had to help Jim escape. <laughs> it's just so ironic, and it's so human, and it's just you make you feel. And Jim is the one you feel the most, too. You just feel so good for Jim. He's such a good person in this. It comes through so honestly. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. And people were, and like Ned Hintoff, oh, his, his essay so well illustrates people on the left have issues with it, people on the right have issues with it. And so when that's the case, something's usually pretty good. <laughs> well, tell us another story. We need another David Massengill story. Well, let's go on to something that's not quite obviously political, which is on the road to Fairfax County. That is a ballad-style song. I remember coming up with a melody, thinking, boy, that sounds like a traditional song. And I thought of the oldest story, which was this, maybe an outlaw story. And I found myself thinking maybe it's a escape from a prison or this and that, and this some sort of macho thing, you know. And then, and then all of a sudden I said, what's the oldest story there is? Once I loved an outlaw. I wrote that line, and I went, huh, he came and stole my heart. And I thought, oh, he's an outlaw, he's stealing. Oh, that's good. And then I went, uh, oh, how I count the what? Years, days, hours since we were torn apart. And it seemed so easy. It came to easy. I had the whole beat. I had the, and that was the first verse. And I looked at it and I said, oh, I'm a woman. I remember thinking to myself, oh, of course, a writer writes from many voices. So now I'm going to write from the voice of a woman who's looking back. Now that was about 5 o'clock in the morning, and I, and I needed to get to bed. I thought, I'll write the rest of the song when I wake up. And by gosh, I did. A week later, I added one because Jack Hardy wanted me to work on it more, and I, I messed up everything I did except for one extra verse. So I thank Jack for that, for complaining. I thought it was you know important that I could take on this this voice of a woman looking back on her life. and But it is, from the woman's point of view, this was a great and traumatic moment in her life. Full, you know, this it was at the height of when you love someone and the possibilities of your life together. At the very height of it, it was, uh, it was snatched away by this tragic ending for this outlaw. So how does it make the world better? The world is not warm and fuzzy all the time. 
you have to deal with tragedies. You have to come back from uh, what might have been. And when I do a message song, I'm not even really trying to do a message song. I'm telling the story. So this tells the story of, uh, of what could have been, and I think showing the possibilities of paradise, of uh, euphoria, of it's right there. I loved an outlaw He came and stole my heart Oh, how I count the hours Since we were torn apart On the road to Fairfax County I spied a highwayman he wanted all my money My heart beat like a drum I gave him all my money And sweet he smiled at me His beauty I took pity Beneath the black hole we kissed, but for an hour The sun was newly warm The clouds were as the flowers That bloom, but for a morn He gave back all my money And bowed most gallantly he promised for me me that night beneath the tree we'd flee to some far island and there we would be wed and freely we would live there with no price upon his head That night I went with my inheritance He kissed me beneath the half moon And joyful we did dance Oh, love betrays all secrets It whispers in the breeze The sheriff he did follow with all his deputies Like hounds rushing to slaughter The fox whose luck is wrong And he stood erect and cursed them God damn you everyone they see 
in a fury And he did not my plea They hung him from the oak tree Where he made love to me Oh, once I loved an outlaw He came and stole my heart Oh, how I count the hours Since we were torn apart On the Road to Fairfax County by David Massengill here today for Spirit in Action. He's sharing music that makes this world a better place. And obviously that that song, David, I have to say is a tearjerker. It's just a... A sad one. You enter into the passions of this woman. I believe in sad stories. You can't just have happy endings to things. That's not life. And so to put the sad stories out there shakes things up and and makes people realize that the world, that's how it makes the world a better place, to to know the sad stories. When I wrote the song, I knew the fella, I knew it was going to be the saddest story there was. The fella was going to die in some way. Another sad story I have and I've had several people record this one as well. That one was recorded by Joan Baez and a few other people. The Roaches were first, and Dave Bromberg. we got time for one more. How are you going to send us off? Well, this is a song that just came to me. I used to go down to the Hoots in Bristol. I know here in New York City, and I'd play the Hoots. That's how I got my start, and I would just go to the Hoots and play every Monday and Tuesday and Thursday nights. I was walking home from one of those hoots. I think it was, was it the dugout? I think it was the dugout. And I was right there, bleaker, and the fella comes up to me and says, it's 4 o'clock in the morning, and the fella comes up and says, excuse me, sir, I'm a foreigner. Where is this place you call Greenwich Village? I looked, you know, right there, and I said, I pointed at the stoplight. I said, well, it starts right here. Here it is. And he says, is it safe? I said, yeah, it's pretty safe. And he continues on. And... I started walking home. It was about a 20-minute walk from uh, to my place in the East Village. And all the way home, I kept repeating his lines, Excuse me, sir, I am a foreigner. Where is this place you call? What was America to the immigrants? There was a free lunch bar. That's, of course, not quite as many as maybe they thought, or, but, but there it was. And then I could see that I could go from one thing, excuse me, for a foreigner, then I could be somebody else. It's the great American dream. One verse is from a prostitute. One verse is from a carpenter, out-of-work carpenter. One is from an Indian. And Jack Hardy, my great friend, had the idea to do this as a group song and have everybody sing a different verse. And so that seemed to really bring it out. Later on, I did a little bootleg at Folk City's 25th anniversary show. And... Tom and Tondi and Lillianelle and Lucy Kaplansky and myself and Joan Baez sang verses of this in front of 10,000 people. And I put that out on one of my bootlegs. Nobody complained. It's pretty sweet. I made this the best song I could, and I was proud of it when I finished. Touching the heart of America, I think. We have had David Massengill with us here today for Spirit in Action. Website, davidmassengill.com. We'll close out this Spirit in Action, leaving you looking at the America all around you with his song, Great American Dream. Thanks so much, David, for joining me. 
I'm very happy to, and I hope to visit again someday. Excuse me, sir. I am a foreigner. I left the white sands of Zanzibar. Where is this place you call free lunch bar? I'm hungry and have overstayed my visa. I work your farm, your factory, pizzeria. Is TV more beautiful than the Mona Lisa? Someday my sons will fight for the eagle. My daughters will never be ashamed of me. It is my dream to be a citizen. It's the great American dream. It's the great American dream. It's the great American dream. Excuse me, sir. I am a prostitute. Just pretend. That I'm a Playboy bunny. For a Franklin, I will tongue your tummy. My body is a battlefield and a flower. Four score and seven tricks by the hour. Oh, the many men one might have been my father. Gonna make my getaway in a zeppelin. Take a bubble bath in the fountain of youth. It is my dream to be a girl again in the great American dream. In the great American dream. In the great American dream. Excuse me, sir. I am a carpenter. Once I built a treehouse for Rockefeller. Though now I've been laid off since December. Someday I'll build a castle all my own in the den. The best lazy boy throne in every room a different color phone. These torn hands are skilled as spiders, and I hear there's work in Kansas building coffins. It is my dream to be cremated with the great American dream. Great American dream, with the great American dream. Excuse me, sir, I am an Indian. Oh, the white man is 
was as greedy as fire. His heart is wrapped round with barbed wire. My father died of whiskey and religion. Though ghosts are cheap on the reservation. In the summer, we're tourist attraction. It is wrong to squeeze the earth like a snake. A deceit to give a stone to the hungry one. It is my dream to skin a pilgrim and the great American dream. And the great American dream. And the great American dream. Excuse me, sir. I am every man. I'm the good thief of Jekyll and Hyde. I'm the social climber on a mountain of pride. I'm the devil, the dumb, and the debonair. I'm the mouse. The monk and the millionaire. I'm the great white hope riding on an old gray mare. I'm the sad-eyed girl as young as the earth. I'm the mother who died giving birth to the great American dream. To the great American. The great American dream. I love freedom. I hope freedom loves me. The theme music for this program is "Turning of the World," performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song.